You don't have to do this to impress me. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 33, Randomness. I want to talk about randomness in Dungeons and Dragons, and really in RPG games in general. Why do we even have dice in D&D? Oh, this is a tough question, because for me, I don't even know if my perfect RPG would involve dice. Like, it would be just kind of long-form dramatic improv. Um, Like Fiasco? Yes, very similar to Fiasco. But, like, maybe there being, like, a person who is a director... And that's kind of the dungeon master. And they just like give uh, cues and stuff and they give advice. Um, and then the, the people just do their jobs and create a really dramatic, interesting scene where they can still make decisions. Um, but the director occasionally inter- intervenes or like gives, you know, other puts other characters in the scene or changes the situation. Um, so, yeah, I've had a weird relationship with dice because a lot of times as a dungeon master, it's like sometimes you have a really good character moment and like they roll in at one and it's like, I can't pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> like I can't say cut. Let's try that again, folks. Like that happened. Um, but that is, that is in its own form. That, that's its own form of improvisation as well, because you have to respond to the chaos of that 20 sided monstrosity. So what, what do you guys think of dice? And rolling and randomness. If you've ever played Cops and Robbers or even the forbidden 50s variant Cowboys and Indians, um, <laughs> or really just played as a child at all, you know that it's hard to have any balance in those kind of games when the neighbor kid just says, Oh, I have a bulletproof vest, or I didn't die, or you missed me, right? Or he's two feet um, taller than you. Like, if you're in this hypothetical scenario, this D&D game, this improv game, and there is some kind of goal. Like in improv, the goal is just to be entertaining yeah. and to be funny. And nobody's really winning except the audience. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously the improvers win if they had fun. And the points don't matter. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you don't really need dice rolls. Um, but then in D&D or RPGs, you definitely need to. Because you need to pass responsibility. Because you can even just have a referee who says, like, okay, you pass, you fail, or like you get the middle result. And that's, that's hard because then people can challenge a referee for making calls. Yeah, uh, referees' jobs a... are terrible. Like, like think of oh, yeah. like no one, no one like writes down when they're you know in second grade. When I grow up, I want to be a referee, <laughs> even though they're critical to all of our games in our society. That's that's an interesting point because it takes away the responsibility of the referee and the game master being linked, and it kind of separates those two and the dice becomes this unbiased just totally random piece of chaos thrown into the game that is the ultimate referee because it is it has no partisanship towards any party hmm so this makes me think that you know the kind of chaotic nature of the dice that we're viewing kind of comes from our experience with our game that we made super random because that is like the epitome of 
Like there's no difficulty checks, there's no modifiers. So what you what you see is what you get with the dice. Um, yeah. And I feel like D and D and all role playing games they use difficulty checks and um, and like modifiers in order to narrow down that chance and give you a higher chance or lower chance succeeding based on what your character is good at. And that's that's the way of kind of managing it and not making it just kind of, hey, flip this coin. Um, mm-hmm. And so how much power do you think the Dungeon Master has over randomness, like with the ability to kind of control the difficulty check um, of any encounter? Because I feel like that was your our only strength in in super random is if you're the, the game master in that game – you just have to make the difficulty check really low if you really want them to succeed or really high if you want them to fail. And that like that's kind of your only lever you can pull. So I want to kind of go back a little bit to the like the purpose of randomness in D&D and touch on that a little bit more because I feel like aside from being just a referee that is unbiased that there are other factors that it plays. I think that it adds an element of unknown to the story where any action could potentially not work out any any one thing could be a fail like you could miss swinging your sword you could not pick a lock you could get caught sneaking around all sorts of things that adds that element of uncertainty and based on the difficulty you know it has an effect and it also gives direction to the game not only does it like add a sense of uncertainty but it also resolves that uncertainty and gives the final direction in like you do get caught now here's how the story progresses from here well you're seeing or you don't get caught and you sneak through you're seeing you're saying randomness gives direction yeah so uh but isn't that direction a random direction yeah well so think about like a tree that branches off it's just selecting one of those branches off randomly Every single dice roll has a different possibility or outcome for the game. It's it's kind of every time you make a roll, it just kind of butterfly effect ripples yeah, throughout it, the rest it, of your game. Um, yeah, it solidifies the, one of the infinite possibilities into reality. Yeah, and I think that's that's the beauty of randomness in Dungeons and Dragons is that it there are so many possibilities, and yet there only is one outcome from those like infinite possibilities. Hmm. Um, I think this gets to the crux of the different styles of D&D, of if D&D is a game or if it's a story. Um, because the, the main tension for me, because I lean much more towards story, is a referee versus a director. And it's like, we have to be both. But like, do should we lean more towards director and trying to guide the story and making difficulty checks low when you want them to succeed? Or should we lean more towards referee and just be like, these are the rules, this is the encounter, I'm not fudging anything. Um, cause th- and that's the hard thing. And that's a hard thing even for real-life referees. There was a big mm-hmm. scandal, I believe it was in the 90s, because um, they did a study about it and showed that referees favored the losing team or the underdog just mm. unconsciously. They weren't trying to rig the game or anything. But deep down, something in their monkey lizard brain wanted drama. It wanted a close outcome. It wanted it to be a good game. Um, and so it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Like These people who are trying to be as unbiased and objective as they can still subconsciously 
kind of try to tilt it towards a closer game. I mean, to be honest, though, I don't think anybody likes in a sporting event to watch a blowout. Those aren't the funnest games to watch. Even though that's the rules, though. Even if even though that's the rules. Even though that's the rules. Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that 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 bias has it creates drama. It creates drama. Mm-hmm. There's there's a need for us to you know unconsciously try to like tip the scales in the favor of. The person who is losing in order to make it seem oh, okay. more dramatic yeah. and more intense. Okay, so I think there's a fine line between this, right? <clears throat> because mm-hmm. we go, we want a close game, we want a close game, we want a close game. But when you see an actual ref, like there's been a few scandals in sports history where refs are actually rigging the game, people get furious. People get very Yeah, mad. and so it's like, it's that line. It's like, how close can we call this? How fair and fun and dramatic can we make this without the audience, um, or in this case, the players, throwing up their hands and being like, what's the point? You know? like Dude, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember playing baseball. Like, I was on a travel team in, like, junior high, and parents would get so pissed off at the refs. <laughs> even and, uh, even and with those low stakes. Even with the <laughs> low stakes of just junior hires playing baseball. <laughs> And they would get mad and they would start yelling and they would just like some of them got thrown out occasionally. And that's to be so invested is crazy. But it shows that when playing a competitive game that you really need fairness Mm -hmm. and, and you need to focus on the competitive integrity of the game. If you are playing with players who focus on a game that is competitive. They're going to want the game to feel as fair as possible Hmm. and they don't want to feel cheated and they want to make sure that everything is as precise and accurate as they can possibly get it when determining dice results. Yeah. Whereas I think for you, Jake, and for me, I like when the dice determines story elements. So I like when the dice leads the game in a different direction story-wise. So that means having more significant consequences for failing dice rolls. So if you get caught while sneaking, like that's going to change the direction that your game is going to go. Maybe you get arrested by the guards or you have oh. a big encounter or something like that. It's I like when the dice can almost dictate the game and kind of change up the pace a little bit. Interesting. Will, do you have something to say? Because I have something to say to that. I have got three points because you guys are like just blowing blowing through these amazing points. Okay. The first one is if we had some perfect AI mechanical referee, does that mean that sporting events would now be more boring and one-sided? I think so. (laughs) Yeah, because they would be interested in fairness and not entertainment. Yeah. Even subconsciously. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's not conscious. These refs are two in their best, but there's something primal about – Hey, this 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 team is getting their butt kicked. We'll just give this to them, you know. And they're right. not even thinking that. It's just like the monkeys wanting to view something fun, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it's probably in the interest of uh, fairness and justice. Well, I think that true. Yeah, yeah. It could so, be empathetic. Yeah. So there's a uh, there there are interesting scientific studies about like mammals playing with each other, like uh-huh. having like the play elements, and in mice, if if a if they're like they say you have like a mouse that is like twice as large as another mouse and they go and they're playing with each other 
if that mouse like doesn't let the other mouse win like a certain percentage of the time, like 40% of the time, oh, they'll stop that playing. other mouse is going to stop playing oh, with them because it's not a fair I've game. Seen that study, yeah. It's like, what's oh, the point, right? You're not practicing anymore. You're just getting your yeah. butt handed to you every time. And the and like the point of playing is for there's a lot of like social um, social interactions that are like reinforced in terms of learning in terms of like um, just being social through play and if the f- play doesn't seem to be fair then nobody's going to want to participate in it and that and I think that that translates into human competitive games yeah. fairly easily yeah. Huh. Dang, there, uh, I feel like there's two more points I wanted to address, but I've forgotten them. Oh, no. Um, Sorry. So, David, addressing a point you had earlier about um, you want to be punished for dice rolls, I, I find that... Uh, no, I, I don't. I didn't say I want to be punished. Well, you, oh, but you, you said you want the risk of the roll to be more, right? I think he wants the result to matter. The result to the, matter. I yeah. want the result to See, matter more in a, I in a story agree. sense. I, so I agree to that, but I want their decisions to affect them more than the roll of their dice, right? Because mm-hmm. I want them, if they make a really good plan, and they, like, if they make the best plan ever, and you're, as a dungeon master, you're like, holy hell, that is ingenious. I never even foresaw, that is fantastic. And I go, okay, uh, roll, okay, I guess you'll have to roll a stealth and then a strength check and then a grapple. And they roll one, one, one. Like, that that feels like you're punishing them for their ingenuity. And I hate that. Like, I, I want there to still be consequences for the roll of the dice. But I, if they make a good, good, wonderful, ingenious, creative decision, I want them to be rewarded for that too. And it, it just feels almost like I'm lying to, or almost like... The game is wrong when they're if they just roll three ones in a row, you know. See, I I a hundred percent disagree with you because I think <laughs> it is so much more interesting when the players do roll one, one, one because that means their plan has gone totally awry and now they have to come up with things. But they didn't on do the anything fly. wrong, and that's it, I I don't like punishing people. Um, so for doing nothing wrong, I don't like. I wouldn't go to a heist film. And watch them plan the whole heist and then it go perfectly and be happy and satisfied in the end. I want to see the heist go wrong. I want to see them get caught or noticed by the security guard that they forgot to include. Hmm. I want to okay. see them okay. I want to see them forget about the exactly. security measures as they're like stealing the object because they rolled exactly. a one. So I'm, like that's what I want to see. I agree. And but I think if, that if you watch heist movies, David, that doesn't happen in the beginning. Imagine watching a heist movie where they're planning out, and this is a TV trope of like the heist montage where they're sure. explaining what their plan is as they're yes. showing the clips. As they're the stealing. Plan. But like imagine being like, okay, here's what we do, fellas. You jump into here and then an alarm goes off and it just ends the montage. Would that be fun? <laughs> it's like, oh, this guy rolled a one. So the clip ends, the montage ends. And but you don't have to, you don't have to make it like there are a lot of systems in place that you can include like blades in the dark has a great system where if as you're failing rolls you're adding things to clocks so oh yeah yeah yeah. you're balancing it it comes back to help you in the end it comes it all evens out evens out and i think that's why blades in the dark is such a great system and you should definitely look into it if you want to run any sort of that's game (laughs) blades in the dark.com (laughs) <laughs> no, so I, I have some thoughts about this too, Jake, because I think that if your players are planning 
exceptionally well, like you're saying, and you're like, well, where's the chance of failure? Um, then maybe don't roll the dice. Like there's been many occasions where I'm like, yep. okay, you really have thought about everything. So where's the chance of failure? Like what what is not covered by this plan? Yep. Um, and so so often, um, like if a player has just some exceptional role play and they're like convincing this person that their lie is fabulous, I'm like, you don't need to roll. Like because at this point there's nothing left up to chance because I know I know how this situation should work out. I think you only need to roll dice when there's any uncertainty about how to proceed. Absolutely. I cannot agree. Will, I don't think I've ever agreed with a statement you've made on this podcast more than that. <laughs> um, All right. I was going to mention. episode 33. <laughs> so, Thanks for listening. So, something I often do, um, as I've said millions of times, I like my games to be very social um, and very dynamic and they're like interactions and role play um, interactions. And so because of that, um, what I will do is I really hate when I say, okay, you're trying to convince this guard to let you pass. I never want them to roll the dice and then role play because mm-hmm. if they roll the dice and they get a nat 20, then they're just like, well, let me pass. Cause I think you want me to, ha ha ha, you know, or if they roll a nat <laughs> one, they're just like, well, I, I'm just an idiot. Uh, sorry. You know, I want them to role play out what they say to the guard as I'm role playing the guard. And then the difficulty check in my mind is just going down with how successful they are. Mm-hmm. And if that difficulty check gets like below a, a 10 or a 5, then I'm like, okay, you pass. I'm not going to make you roll for that. Like that would be dumb to make you roll for that and you get a nat 1. And even though you blew my socks off with how charismatic and charming you were, you roll a nat 1 for some reason. Like, yeah, I, I have this like counter in my mind of like if you're killing it, that difficulty check's going down. This is easier and easier and it reaches a threshold where it's like, you're not rolling. You nailed that. Yeah. And that's really smart because um, you still leave it up to like there's other factors. You're saying, okay, well, they, they talked to this guard down from a 20 to like an 18, but then they did this and this factor. And you just have this number changing in your mind. Um, I think that's, that's nice. Um, just because it keeps it a little more fair. Uh, as long as the players feel like it's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But Jake, if you're, if you're doing that, where's, where's the unbiased fairness Well, from a referee's <clears throat> standpoint? Well, so you're saying, I'm thinking almost from like a, story referee standpoint if this guy does this amazing job um and just is like like is incredible at role play makes points i wasn't even thinking about and just really is insane then um i'll give an example of this in my saturday night or my saturday we call ourselves the saturday nights uh (laughs) k-n-i-g-h-t-s um oh i got it (laughs) let me give you some spelling uh just to make sure everyone got <laughs> um we the reference we had um uh the group is like these kind of navy seal team um and they're trying to do all these missions um and during one of the missions they um lied about a dragon egg they said oh there was no dragon egg in there but when in actuality the dragon egg hatched and th- this this one player is trying to raise the dragon as like a son now, the dragon is a chromatic dragon, which is an inherently evil creature. And so it's like, can nurture overcome nature? And so they eventually are found out, and the main agent, who like is their boss, like chews them out and says, uh, why would you do this? That's an inherently evil creature that needs to be destroyed. Um, and the party <laughs> consists of a yuntai, a full orc, a goblin and a uh, the alien 
race. I can't remember what they're called. Is it Gith? Yeah, it's a Gith. Um, oh. Yeah, and, and a Gith. And so the full orc forge cleric just goes, uh, pardon me, sir, but uh, all of us are technically inherently evil as well, and you decided to hire us. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a, that's a great point. And while I was going to make this a really hard social encounter that they'd have to be really creative to get out of it, he nailed it, right? Like he made a point that was just so good. And so when that orc made that amazing point, I'm not going to make him roll because if he gets a one, it just sucks all the air out of the room and it just ruins it. And so I thought that was just an amazing point. And I go, all right, you crossed the threshold where I'm going to make you roll. And so randomness is still there. You know, if they're just like, well, we just, we love the dragon. He's nice. You know, <laughs> I'd make them roll. But like, if, if you make a great point, I'm going to be like, dang, yeah, that, that works. I'm not even gonna make you roll. So in this case, rolling a dice is, if all else fails, it'll come down to just random chance because the players didn't provide anything that was actually good or usable. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's. Yeah, like if, if you're in like the upper echelon, like um, the upper echelon, like the 1%, I'm not going to make you roll and drop that down to a zero by some random nat one roll. Like I want that to succeed. And so I think me and David, David, I think we agree. Well, I was, I but was the threshold is different. So I'm going to, I want to ask you an interesting question. Okay. If I like perfectly describe everything I do in D&D, like if I'm playing it in a game of yours and i'm like very eloquent in how i describe all of my actions when i ever have to roll a dice so here's one of a distinction games. i want to make between social and combat i view social as a more like if you're really great socially or if you make good points or you role play really really well i want that to work i think my threshold barrier goes up when um when you're in combat, because that's when I think the D&D gaminess comes out, right? That's when it becomes kind of a chess match. That's when it becomes managing spell slots and coordinating and teamwork. Um, so I think my my threshold barrier is much harder to... It's much harder for you to not roll um, in combat. This brings us to a very interesting point, and that is... We use randomness to model things that we're not as familiar with. Like, I don't know anything about fencing oh, or sword fighting. Yeah. And I don't know about spells. And I don't know about, like, you know, they're, like combat stuff, especially medieval things. And so it's just abstracted out into something that's very quick and easy. And so that is when we really Whoa. lean on randomness. And, but we all know what lying and deception and charisma is in real mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. so we can just be like, yeah, that would convince this guy. You know, Wait, it, what's deception? Uh, oh my god! <laughs> but uh, in combat, yeah, David, I don't care how well you explain it, but you explaining how you swing a greatsword doesn't translate well to me because I've never swung a greatsword at a heavily armored orc before, and I don't so, think you have either. <laughs> this, well, this is so. Imagine if all of us were medieval weapon historians. Would that change the way? Our combat works in D and D because we know. I'm like, okay, I use like the um, I don't even know the terms, but like the certain foot position, the certain stance for holding a sword, and I attack using this technique at this part of the the target. 
uh, from this like elevation, like, whatever, you know every little detail. And then the person who knows those details might be like, okay, well, then you have a superior position and you would be There's more There's no way that could hit. fail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. That is inc- – yeah, I really think that's a great <laughs> point of like you kind of role play out and don't want to apply randomness to what you know. But things that you don't know about like how arcane energy works <laughs> – or how you know spell effects or how like the gruesome you know combat effectiveness works like yeah that's when you're like yeah roll we'll see <laughs> use your modifiers yeah. we'll we'll just see how that works because we can't you know we you know i don't think we're medieval war veterans <laughs> <laughs> medieval war <laughs> oh that's that's a really good point though yeah i'm just kind of sucking on that one for a second <laughs> Would you use that? <laughs> it's like a sucker, you know. You're like, mm. right. yep. Right. That's well, yep. Warm it up. <laughs> oh, I'm disgusted. I disgusted. I'm dad. <laughs> I'm dad. <laughs> I'm dad. <laughs> what if we have a version of D and D where you don't roll dice, even for attack rolls or for damage or anything? Oh man, how would that change the game? I I feel like I would want to have a dungeon master who knows what that combat is like or else i would feel like i'm being railroaded in combat okay so now that gives me another observation um without randomness the burden of responsibility is much more on the gm yes like because then you have to know so much more and be prepared and like really think about these situations when we can just say okay i'm gonna roll the dice and just see what happens yeah so i think that it wouldn't be much different, but it would be a lot about the the emphasis would be a hundred percent on the player's actions. The narration of their actions. It would be so like let's say you just take dice rolling out of out of combat, for example, and you say, "Well, we're just going to go with the average for damage, mm-hmm. and to hit is just going to be um, you hit up like a." percentage of the time you know equal to so it, how much like your attack bonus is compared to their ac so let's like let's say the ac is 10 and you have a plus five to hit you're going to be hitting half uh, the time you're going to be hitting 75 percent of the time so <laughs> wait so eight, that means eight, I know. eight out of ten times you get eight hits and two misses what, for every 10 attacks you well, wouldn't it be like just like i hit three out of four times and yeah so but i know when I'm gonna miss, it's something. Like, oh, yeah, I'm just not gonna worry about that. Like that. That seems so dry to me. Yeah, yeah. So it, and it seems very much more mechanical and much more focused on players' actions. It it kind of would almost, in a sense, feel like Dark Souls. Oh, or Tetris. Oh, I feel like <laughs> Tetris. You're right. No, I feel like it would almost be similar to Dark Souls, where every like if you if you just miss, it's like your own fault. But that was that's the... so weird though because I feel like in a combat where there are so many variables, but you know somehow now uh, that like I hit three out of four attacks um, with a hundred percent certainty, like that feels more artificial than just rolling dice, huh. and, and it's also less fun. Yeah, because honestly, gambling is fun for humans, and a oh, lot yes. of times rolling dice is it's just gambling, um, yeah. especially with a lot of the risk reward they built into 5e with advantage and disadvantage. Um, and having that lever to pull as a DM, like, hey, you can try this, but it'll be at disadvantage and you get a level of exhaustion, you know? And it's like, mm. oh, interesting. Like, I, 
there's a lot of levers to pull to make it more like gambling and and people like that right like that's why i could never take dice out of the game because let's be real like rolling dice is fun yeah so it's people would much rather so there there have been studies done where people have been offered like five dollars or like a one percent chance at like five thousand dollars which calculated out like percentage wise like is this worth the same amount as the five dollars at a hundred percent chance or whatever it, whatever dollar amount was the dollar amount isn't accurate but people would start choosing the small percent chance of winning a large sum of money rather than the guaranteed because it's more interesting it's fun that, that yeah and it's fun okay and i it's, i it's, have i have a story for that so um a lot of times uh like that that's how the, that's how the whole lottery works you're not paying to win money you're paying to be able to dream about what you would do if you won the money. Like that's yeah. the point of the lottery. The people who have lottery parties, once it gets like a big jackpot prize, um, those people will have lottery parties and sit around. And what they'll do is they'll they'll uh, fantasize about what they do if they won $2 billion. Um, and that's what you're paying for. Like you pay $3 for a ticket or whatever. And that $3 is just to allow you to fantasize. It's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> the opposite of that is my father. He did something where um, my family for birthdays, they don't really buy to their gifts, like my extended family. They'll just – everyone will buy them a lotto, lotto ticket. Um, it's just like – it's just this weird ritual we have. And so my dad scratches off a lotto ticket from like my uncle and it says, you win $1, which is the price of the lotto ticket. And so my dad <laughs> – we immediately go straight to the grocery store. My dad puts it on the table. He'd be like, I'd like my dollar. And they're like, oh, uh, you could just get another ticket and try again. Um, and he's like, I don't want to try again. I would like my dollar. And <laughs> they gave him a dollar bill. And he's like, thank you. And he puts it in his wallet and just starts to leave. And the cashier looks at me and says, that's the first time anyone has won $1 and not immediately asked for another ticket. <laughs> and so my dad is just like games of chance no i I made money i profited one dollar someone gave me essentially one dollar for my birthday and i'm gonna keep it <laughs> and i'm gonna keep it oh man didn't he spend the gas to get to the gas station i mean yeah he's and... probably he probably only pocketed like 50 cents but <laughs> that's still profit <laughs> i guess when you do it that way uh but to be honest like the bottom line is my dad is a crazy person. So that like, that is not how people <laughs> think. Most people are like, yeah, give me those roles because they want to be like, oh, this could be a net 20. This could be a net 20. This could be a net 20. And it's just exciting. And it's just, yeah, a minor form of gambling. I think it is exciting because even if you're rolling to hit or you're rolling to do damage, like there's an off chance that you're going to roll maximum damage. Like either, whether that's a crit or you just roll your dice better um, for damage. And that is, that causes excitement. So I have a question for you guys. Um, do you guys narrate your players' attacks or do you put that on the players and make them narrate their own attacks? Oh, I feel like it's kind of a mix depending on like if I have an idea for the attack. Okay. Yeah. What, David, same? Um, pretty much the same. See, I think mine's the same too. Um, but I feel like a lot of times when you're focused on the dice – you can just be kind of gunning for that nat 20 and none of the combat is on you. It's kind of like you're just kind of this apathetic third party who's like rolling for your character to succeed. Um, and I like, and this has become cliche at this point, but Matt Mercer's system of 
whenever um because I, I believe he narrates how the attack goes based on the role and he he kind of takes on that burden the but, players narrate what they're trying to do well but, yes yes but then it's and then it's switches when they kill the enemy and he says how do you want to do this uh, right which was 10 so 20 so 42 42, 42. Nice. means it is 21 damage how do you want to do that? um and it's become this this cool rallying cry for like succeeding in D. you go how do you want to do this um, and then it gives them the the pleasure of being able to describe what happens and give it, you know, puts it in their control. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like that. And I feel like there's kind of a tension between people just rolling and like kind of taking that away and being like, describe to me what you do. Like make them role play combat more. Like role play doesn't end when combat begins. And, and I want to encourage um, creative descriptions of combat. Yeah, that's important because so often, like, with my D&D history and playing with people who, um, turns out, were never that interested in playing D&D, for them, combat was where the fun stopped. And that was where the game went to die. Because they couldn't really influence the game in a fun roleplay way. It was just purely interacting with the system. And so um, I've worked pretty hard to bring back more of that fun narration but then there's also a line there because if you give too much creative control then the players will start doing crazy things and, and trying to get might have attacks. to say the horrible word no yeah no <laughs> no you can't uh, pirouette off the roof and fire three arrows at all three orcs you've got, slide down on you've a got shield. six seconds to work with kid <laughs> <laughs> nice try kid oh man um the last part of randomness in the game is from rolling your character stats and this is something that most people don't do. I know it's abhorrent to David to imagine such a thing. Um, but in the old game, uh, I think this was useful because, um, well, not only was it simpler and there wasn't derived saving throws or stats, so it didn't really matter as much, but um, it narrows player choices. So if you're playing D&D 5 for the first time with some new players and you say, what class do you want to be? And they might want to look through every class in the game, get a feel for them, um, and it, it could take some time. I, when I run the game, I actually had a um, a text message, and um, I sent a summary. Like, here's what the paladin does, druid, cleric, like all of them. Here's like a one sentence summary of what they do, and then the players chose. But if you're rolling dice for stats, then you're like, well, my character really wouldn't be a good this, but they would be a good that. And so that just makes it easier to digest. Like, if I only have to choose between like two or three classes instead of, I think there's what seven or eight in the game. Wait, classes? Yeah, There's how many 12. are there? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, but you're counting Bard as a class, which isn't... No, I'm... <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I think to combat this, um, my players, I-, I give them the option to roll, but I say before you roll, you have the option to pick the standard array. Mm-hmm. So you can pick the standard array, which I can't. I can't remember what the numbers are, but they're they're you know have been calibrated 15, to 14, be 14, 13, 12, 10, 8. <laughs> are you serious, David? Do you know that yes. well? Oh god, <laughs> that's because David only uses standard array because it's yeah. like the perfect balanced yeah. setup. It's perfectly it, balanced as all things should be. I was it, hoping there it is. Say that. Thanos <laughs> makes his way back into our podcast for the four hundredth time. Um, so. <laughs> No, like, I, I like to give them that option, right? So, David, if you're playing in one of my games, I go, here's the standard array. It's all yours. Or you can roll. Um, and so it gives you the option to be like, I don't want to take the risk. I want to take the most, like, I, I can really take the game into my own hands. 
I'm going to min-max how I want. Or you can just go for it and hope you roll four 18s. Um, and so... Unlikely. Very unlikely. Um, so I like giving them that chance because I don't like forcing everyone to roll. Um, because what if someone wants to min-max and they just get a terrible roll? And they're just like, they have a low lower character... And they're like, I like this game because of the combat. It's like, oof. Um, but I make that decision, I, I put that decision ahead of the rolling. So it's like, pick the standard or roll to try to get higher. Um, but if they roll lower, I'm not going to say you can switch back and get the standard array now. Like, they have to kind of go with their randomness. So so that's how I do it, um, just to give them the chance to keep it even. Um, but, you know, if they... Most of my players are risk takers and, and want to see what they get. Um, David, have you ever used the point buy system? Uh, yes. Do you think that's better than standard array? I like it even. I like that or standard array. I think they're both balanced. Okay. I So I don't like rolling because I feel like on average it gives players stats that make them too good at everything. Or too bad. Yeah, because I've seen some bad I rarely, Rarely will I see a... a a character that is bad at everything. I'll see a character with like all of their stats will be 12. And I'm like, well, like that's dumb because they're just kind of above average at everything. <laughs> and they also are not great at anything at all. Dude, that's what and that's <laughs> my, uh, in, in my recent game that we're playing, uh, for Waterdeep dragon heist, <laughs> my, my player is playing a Warforged rolled and he rolled exceptionally well. He got three plus threes and three plus twos. So he's just, and I, I think it, it kind of makes sense for him because he's like, he's this Warforged that's like kind of inherently superior in every way, but he doesn't have any <laughs> plus fours or plus fives, but he's just like solid good across the board. <laughs> but well, I can see me, that learning like, a game. Yeah. That makes the game uninteresting because when a character is exceptionally good at pretty much everything, mm-hmm. then it takes away from the rest of the party who is also trying to have an impact on the story. And when one person is the jack of all trades and master of everything, that gives no opportunity for other players to shine either in like, cause when you have the same person who is both a beast in combat and a beast in the social <laughs> sphere or a beast in, in stealth like that, that takes away. Oh man! From so, so this question I have is mainly based towards Will, because I think I know the answer for me and the answer for David. <laughs> Would you ever allow or be interested in having a multi-level party? So all the people in the party are different levels. I think my answer yeah. is yes. David's yeah, answer is I am sure is no. What's the purpose for having multiple levels in the party? So, to be more realistic, like, like if you have, um, you know, if you're role-playing a character, one is like a paladin, and one character is like a bard that follows the paladin, and is kind of this plucky young kid, um, that, that kid should be a lower level than the paladin. Like, that makes more uh-huh. sense. Um, or if, like, someone leaves that session... And the DM role plays them, or the DM says, "Oh, they're sick and they they fall asleep for this whole. They're in a coma yeah. for this whole mission." Um, do you level them up too, or do you keep them a lower level because they weren't there? So, for if I'm playing a game and there's a focus on stats and combat and all of that, I keep the levels even. But if it was for a story purpose, like having 
a character who is like if I'm playing super random and one character is just a sidekick, they're just going to be naturally kind of worse at everything. Interesting. And that and so if it depends upon the game I'm playing, and I think if it fits, then I would definitely be okay with the character being worse in a story based game, but not in a competitive fair based game like Adventures League. Yeah, yeah. So no, definitely not. In my games, uh, I I have a rule um, that is if your character dies and you create a new character, that new character comes in one level below everyone else. Just to encourage people to want to stay alive. Because a lot of people will be like, uh, this character, I, I kind of want to make a paladin, sorcerer, multi-class. I, do, I don't want people to get bored of their characters and kind of give up early on. So it's kind of a little bit of a, if your character dies, the consequence is your new character is going to be one level lower than everyone else. Um, and I think it's worked good so far. The only time it's happened has been at pretty high levels. So like someone coming in at level 13 when everyone else is level 14 is not too bad like it's right. not but if somebody's at level 14 and everybody else is level two then oh yeah but that would imply hold on will that would imply those players dying 12 times <laughs> <laughs> so well i'm thinking of a scenario um because i have this this grand vision for an open table um where i just have like a cast of players who are available to play um but they're not always available. So basically I have like 10 players, but I only play with like four or five at a time. Um, so it doesn't matter they might have different play. Right. And so that's why we always get a game together, but they might have characters who are leveling at different rates, but that's, that's more of if we were doing um, like milestone XP or just regular XP experience points. Yeah. Um, which don't, I, I've never run that in 5e. Yeah. So, but uh, uh, philosophically I'm okay with running a mixed level party. We can talk a little bit about um, critical successes and failures because this is, I think, um, this was a variant rule for the old game. Originally, there was no critical hits or critical misses. It was just like, it's just what it was. And But now we're really trying to push that extreme emotion, that gambling high, yeah. that gambling yeah. low, oh, yes. as far as it can go. And in that way, I totally understand it and totally love them. <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish that dice results were more extreme for that reason that the the dice had more of an impact because when you're just rolling and it's like oh i miss with my first three attacks and i have three more and then those three hit that's just that doesn't seem that interesting and it seems kind of like a binary outcome that i would like to have more swing in between like oh you shoot and you obliterate it oh okay so are you talking about like levels of success and and levels of failure yeah. Yeah. I think Star Wars nailed that with their Yes, that's what I was yeah. just about mm-hmm. to bring up. Yeah. Is that Star Wars, um, their their fantasy role playing game by Fantasy Flight. There's uh Age of Rebellion. Edge of the Empire. Edge of the Empire is the first Destiny. one, and then Force of Destiny. Oh, those games and are fun. they have a beautiful dice system, which is terrible but also great. <laughs> it's very taxing. <laughs> so it's like, okay, this critically succeeds, but there are two setbacks. And so it's but like, there are two, oh, like there's God. two threat. It's like, yeah, and, what does right, that did, mean? So for the audience who's not familiar, uh, the Edge of the Empire games in that series has custom dice. And there's, um, they call it a non-binary uh, dice result. It's like mm-hmm. a dice pool system. Um, and so it's possible to critically succeed while also critically failing, which is crazy to me. So like you you snipe the, the guard in the neck, but the, uh, the 
people instantly see you up on the hill and start shooting at you, right? Like, um, and it puts you in situations that are very different than D and D. When normally it's like, oh, well, I just crit you for a bunch of damage, and there's no other narrative result that's gonna happen. I love and it. it, and it, I, I actually, it's one of my favorite systems for dice, but I also kind of hate it. But it's, <laughs> I think it's so interesting and unique, and yeah. it's one of the most innovative things that I've seen in terms of dice rolling and role playing and in adding a lot more depth to dice results and i love that about the system and i'm i'm trying to figure out ways to implement that in my games because i there are, there are aspects of it that i really like in terms of having non-linear results where it's not just success or failure it's you succeed but there's a threat or you critically fail but something still good still kind of happens and things like that which our current dice system in D&D can't model yeah. very well. I found a uh, similar to Star Wars, but also very simple and satisfying uh, system in Dungeon World, where they have a, instead of a D20, that you roll 2D6, and you have three degrees of success. And that is if you roll over a certain threshold, that's a pure success. Um, in the middle, you have success with a complication, which is like almost always more fun. And then you have a flat failure. And when you get a flat failure, you get one XP. And that's like one of the only ways to get experience in the game is to try and fail, which is great. Um, huh. But it's it's cool because success with the complication, um, like so in D anD D, you're just swinging your sword and you're hitting the orc, and you hit it for some damage. But in in Dungeon World, you swing and you hit the orc, but you have a complication, so it hits you back or it knocks your sword out of your hand a second after you hit it mm-hmm. or it trips you, right? Like there's or sand it, it, it feels <laughs> yeah the the combat feels more alive and dynamic. Um, but because that's a more of a storytelling game, um, hardcore players will feel that it's unfair because oh now gosh. the DM is yeah. being that referee and it just happened because I said it happened and it wasn't fair. It wasn't in the rule book. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so I've seen, I mean, the best logic I can present for this side, which I wholeheartedly disagree with, um, is like, if I'm a level 20 fighter, I should not have a 5% chance of missing anything. Which is what a nat one is. It's just a 5% chance of failure. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I get that, but it's like, that's not fun. I don't know if it's my improv background or just like the storytelling game I'm going for. Um, but crit fails are super fun. I think the worst case scenario for like someone rolling to hit is they roll like a four. And it's like, mm. oh, you miss. And that's it. You know, like I feel like yeah. a nat one would be better because it's like, okay, you drop your sword or you suddenly are, are are terrified of this guy. Like something fun and interesting happens with you missing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's better than just flat out missing. Um, that's exactly like why I liked the uh, Star Wars yes. system so much because it's not binary and you succeed or you fail. There are different elements to it that kind of make each dice roll more significant and add more weight to it. Yeah. Where it's there there could be something that good happen so nothing really happens except something kind of good happens and something kind of bad happens. And and like, what's great is the DM and the players had um a force like system or like oh, the, the pool. The the pool, the dice pool or like the like you flip the cardboard things and it's like, okay, the dark side of the force is becoming more powerful. And the DM can like flip over a dark side point to light to kind of balance it out and add a dice to his side at any time. 
but the players can do the same thing. And so they can kind of, so the force, the balance of the force is always kind of having this push pull relationship that keeps the game even more balanced. Like, oh, well designed system. I miss playing it. it. it, yeah, we, that's such a fun game. Um, that's another system that we highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, you could probably get the books used online for almost nothing. But um, So my experience with that force pool system, real quick before we uh, move on, um, is that I would flip all my dark side points to escalate uh, an encounter, and then the players would have like four or five Crit. light side points sitting in front of them the entire game, and they never flipped it. Oh, really? They, yeah, because they just don't want to give me an opportunity to... to Oh, don't want to keep more ammunition. Oh, yeah, that's it's fun. like um, what do they say? It's risk aversion. Yes, like yeah. They value their failure more highly, or they fear it more highly than than I did. So, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, uh, another thing with with crits. Um, do, so you guys, I've been uh, blasted on this podcast for my use of critical failures for skill checks. Um, oh my are you gosh. guys just totally anti that critical failure failures and successes uh yeah for skill checks i mean it's uh, yeah i would say no because then you have a five percent chance of just doing anything and that's very silly and game breaking <laughs> oh man I, so i'm just a peasant from the woods and i rolled out a 20 arcana that's why it, and it, like, I, ra- I read the runes if there's something that has to succeed for the plot to move forward i don't make them roll for it or mm-hmm. I make them roll with advantage because the chance of you rolling two nat ones is astronomically low. Um, so I think this only works like if, if they didn't have the 5e advantage disadvantage lever to pull, um, I, I would not have critical fails and critical successes on skill checks. Um, but I just find them fun. It adds more, like you guys said, a little bit of gambling to the game, even to the minutia of like lock picking, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I bet David is like... Oh, he's just shaking this. with rage right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <He's> livid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it... Yeah, I think I think Will has a good point in that it makes... You have a 5% chance of beating anything or uh, liter- charming anyone, having a free charm person with, you know, critting, or having a 5% chance of... Just making someone absolutely hate you mm-hmm. for no reason, and that and that seems kind of dumb. <laughs> and I, I would like to see there be more of like a dynamic range between like the Star Wars dice. Six, yes, yeah. With more, you kind Setbacks. of succeed or you kind of fail or something neutral happens, but the state is different because as it is, skill checks are very binary, and if you're not careful, it's I pick the lock. It's like, well, you fail. It's like, well, um, I try to smash the lock. Well, you also fail that. And it's like, you just hit these weird walls where nothing seems to like really happen. Yeah. The players just kind of like, are just like kind of banging their head against the wall until like they finally succeed yeah. because there's no, it's, it's success or failure is so. Binary. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, but um, I think advantage, disadvantage and um, the, exhaustion system are two of the most underutilized parts of 5e um and i think think advantage is underutilized um i disagree no no for for the for the dungeon master to use it like oh as like on the fly yeah yeah just be like yeah i'll give you advantage for that like that's literally if the players are paying attention that is key for i want you to succeed at this 
Like, no, I'm not talking about like the samurai subclass of the fighter who's just like advantage, advantage, advantage. You know, this is like, okay, you're, you're trying to lock pick. I'll give you advantage, right? Because like, I want you to pick this lock. But also if you roll a nat one, the lock, you know, maybe has a trap on it or maybe But the thing breaks. is like, if you want them to succeed at it, then why don't you just let them succeed for the sake of succeeding? And why even roll in the first place? No, because no. what happens when they roll a two instead of a one? It's like, well, you still fail. No, no, because you want to lean towards something. Because a lot of times, um, especially at like really high level, if you roll a two, you still succeed because you have like a plus 17 stealth or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, it, it really is that one chance of something going wrong. But here's the thing. Even the Dungeon Master's discretion, if you roll a nat one, the bad thing that happens might not be that bad. Right? Like, um, it could be something incredibly minor. Um, you know, maybe you drop one of your bullets. Or maybe, um, you know, it doesn't have to be... Because people hear critical failure and they go, Oh, what? The orc slits my throat because I rolled a one? That's not fair. I don't... I hate that. You know, it's like... No, no, no. Like, uh, it doesn't have to be... I think from uh, learning from the Star Wars system, it just has to be a minor setback. You know? Like, anything from... Giving one level of exhaustion or um, jamming or your, your finger breaks. or yeah, you lose a lockpick. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be as scary as people say. Because when I say, yeah, you can critical fail a skill check, like it doesn't mean like they slit their own throat accidentally. Like it's not horrifically bad. Mm-hmm. It's just like an extra fun gimmick kind of to the to so, their failure. So just talking about um, skill checks a little bit more. I think that my main problem with skill checks right now, as it is in 5e, is there's isn't really consequences for failure explicitly. Like, I roll Arcana, and, and I'm trying to decipher this magical rune. Like, and you roll low, and it's like, well, you don't learn anything about it. And that, that just seems it's like an yeah. interesting result. It's like and something happens if you succeed or nothing happens if you <laughs> fail. Yeah. Yes. And I strongly dislike that. So in my in my games now, I my goal is to always have something interesting happen whenever the dice is rolled. Either they succeed and they get what they want or something, the state of the game is changed in, for whatever reason. Let's say you're rolling to pick a lock on a door. And you roll and you fail, like what would be more interesting? You just don't pick the lock, or you do pick the lock and you open the door and there's three guards standing or, right yeah, there. Or someone hears you picking the lock, or yeah. Or someone hears you picking the lock, or the lock is booby trapped, or you know, whatever. Like any number of things could happen. And I, I use and a crit I think one it, for that. I, I don't, yeah. I feel like I think works. I would do that on any failure, not just a crit one, because that makes the game more interesting oh, and forces the players interesting. to. Huh. Okay. Because it just like adds more of a dynamic element. And it doesn't always have to be extreme. It doesn't always have to be like, oh, well, like now you're surrounded by 100 guards. Hmm. Like, what do you do? It's like, no, it's like, well, like, like there's a homeless person on the street that's just watching you as you're picking the slot. Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that. Because um, it, it's like you're, you're associating skill checks with narrative complications. Um, I've had a lot of the same issues with the game that David has had, but... Um, with the inclusion of just time tracking, it's it's fixed so many of my complaints. So like the way that would work is that um, like we were doing a dungeon crawl and you run it almost like you're in initiative all the time. That's the way I was running it. 
but instead of six seconds, each turn is 10 minutes. So your characters have 10 minutes oh. to do their task. Yeah. And um, you can do it quite a lot. It, it triples your your movement speed for that that turn. Um, and then you you have random encounters to add pressure. So let's say you fail picking a lock, um, then they, they will have to just try again on the next turn. And that you're using up torches and resources and there's a chance that um, the random encounter will happen and then maybe that door just opens in your face and out steps the guards out steps the encounter and so um, that was that's a solution that's um, from the original game and to me it works really well um, because uh-huh. then there's this simple built-in risk reward thing and you don't really have to make up any more story to go with it and which could feel unfair to certain players um, and exhausting just, for the dm yeah right mm-hmm. um or you could just you know like Jake's saying, just give them exhaustion or, or give them some other setback. But th- that's how I would handle it is with time tracking. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Beyond dice rolling, there's another chaotic random force in the game, and that force is the players. <laughs> yeah. It is yeah. human beings who are unpredictable, uh, and yet sometimes strangely predictable. <laughs> are you saying all players are of the alignment chaotic? <laughs> uh, in the sense that they're unpredictable, yes. Um, all right, so let's talk about players and gms and and how to react with uh react to a force that is inherently out of control or unpredictable i mean for me it would be will the word you you love that i've learned to love is verisimilitude yes. um being like okay w- what logically follows from this um mm-hmm. and that's a skill you learn as a dm being like okay they do this this would naturally happen with the world um mm-hmm. and not making it like a railroad of like Perfect. This will this will lead them on my path just as I want. But just making it like, yeah, okay, this would be the logical outcome to this. And I think this could be improved by just knowing your world better. Like being mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, this faction is is here in this world, and this thing would have this negative implication. Um, and and playing through the new Dragon Heist, I've realized verisimilitude in a huge urban center populated with hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people is is harder because you're like okay yes this action has social ramifications for about 10 different factions yes um and so you might have to do a little bit more math in like an urban center or more complex social mystery campaigns um but really just just thinking of the logical outcome um and allowing like finding the story beats in the verisimilitude. Yes. Um, and for the new listener, uh, Josh, yes, uh, verisimilitude really just means plausibility or believability. So that is um, why we use it so much. Yeah. That's just for you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope that we have a new listener named Josh because that will make them flip out. Josh is going to love that. Anyway. Um, yeah, so Can I that just be our default fan name. The new, yeah, Josh, Josh. Josh. Uh, or maybe it's a new fan name every time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Roberta, Roberta Kerrigan from Minnesota. All right, Go anyway. Vikings. <laughs> okay. Um, no, so to respond to your question, Jake, like it's important to to understand that your players will not necessarily follow your plot, and they're not going to go where you want. And like, if you're trying to have a plausible, believable world, you need to have there's a, a blog I love called the Alexandrian and he posits you should prep situations and not plots. So a plot is something that goes from A to B to C. I've talked about this before. Uh-huh. Um, and a situation is just this 
it's going on and the players can interact with it in a number of ways. Um, and as long as the GM understands the situation, then they can make realistic um, assumptions or conclusions about what would happen to your point about the city. If you have like 10 layers deep of situations going on and the players pull this one string and it ripples across the entire town or the city, it it's really tough to keep up plausibility uh, and realism to a degree. Um, in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I have a solution. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I can just, I can argue for verisimilitude. I had one of my players um, in one of my games who um, we played through my homebrewed uh, Rise of Tiamat. And it, that that campaign is just, it is 12 parts. It is A to B to C. It is just, it is, it is, it's very railroaded. On purpose, mm. because that that campaign is meant to introduce people to D and D, and so I want the railroad. I want them to be like, okay, there's this plot happening, and you're kind of this on this fun adventure that is you're kind of on the tracks. Um, it's meant for new players, and I did it with my most recent group. And um, at the end, one of my players was like, I don't know if D and D's for me, um, oh. and, and I was just like, what? 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 What, what did I do wrong? And he talked about the tracks and he's like i feel like we were just on this predetermined thing that we could just make minor choices to and i was like yeah because you guys are new players i'm so sorry i was trying to do that because i thought you guys were noobs to the game and and but as you know about halfway through that campaign i realized these people had been um big fans of like D and D podcasts like critical role in the adventure zone and so they know what D and D is they were not noobs, and that was a mistake mm. for me to start them out in that campaign that is just purely railroaded. That's like how to introduce like people who have never even played like a video game before <laughs> to to D and D. And so, um, the, our newest campaign is much more like they are free to do whatever. Like in one of, the, and and I convinced that guy to come back and say, no, 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 that was that specific campaign. It was purposely on the rails. Um, and so now they're just walking up to city guards, looking at wanted posters, picking out whatever bounty they want to go after. Um, and yeah, it's just like they're free to work with whoever, whichever faction. They're free to to do a, a ton of stuff. And so um, I, I've realized like to know the players because some very, very, very new players need a railroad. Um, but you have to know when it's time to take the tracks away and be like, you know, let the bird out of the nest <laughs> and be like, go to town, like do whatever you want. And, and I'll let the verisimilitude take place. <laughs> I love that it's, word. It's so fun to say. <laughs> so I have a question for you, Jake. Uh-huh. Um, how do you plan for everything? I was asked this by um, a coworker of mine some time ago. And he said, in a game where players can do literally or seemingly literally anything, how do you account for that? How do you plan that? So I, I in the past, I've had players that were new to D&D. And when you're new to D&D, the dungeon master is almost like a god. Like they are, like you essentially go, hey, DM, where should we go? Because this is, I trust you to tell a good story. Um, yeah. I trust you to, to lead me on whatever path will make us have the most fun. Because a lot of times when you have a DM that has a railroad and the players leave the tracks, there's nothing. You, you just see a tumbleweed you know roll by <laughs> you find and, the edge of the world yeah yeah you find the edge of the verisimilitude 
<laughs> it hasn't been rendered in yet. Yeah, that's yeah I'm picturing true. like a wire mesh black abyss. It's just it's just the <laughs> Apple like spinning wheel everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and, hmm. and so um yeah, I think that happens, especially with new DMs who are trying for the first time and like are following maybe a campaign module to the T. They're like, oh no, what happens if one of the characters just says, I head north? It's like the, the, the rails are gone now and you, it, there's a lot more pressure on the DM because there's no like setup modules and stuff. Um, and so for me, I had like very, like I said, this is the, my fourth time going through this campaign. So I had like NPCs plotted out. I had people saying things that were like, I knew how to um, have several sheepdogs keeping the players on the rails. Um, and and so the people are sheep. Well, in that first campaign, because I underestimate players, because when I first started this in what, 2013 or whatever, like 2014. Yeah. Whenever, whenever we first started and when this edition came out, D&D, you know, this was before Stranger Things or before any of the other like critical role blowing up um, because of that, like people didn't know what D&D was. And so I built this whole campaign that's finely tuned for players that don't know what D&D is. And it's for them to learn what D&D is. But now I realize I might have to just hang that campaign up because everyone, especially my friends, know what D&D is and they need an open world and they need... The world has changed. Yeah. Like they know what D&D is, they know what role playing is, and they need a world that they can change and do whatever they want in. Um, And I'm ready for that. Um, Tiamat 2.0. But yeah, I I don't know if I'll ever run that campaign again. Unless it's like some of my wife's friends who have just never, you still think, you know, that's the devil's drink. <laughs> Put that clip in, Jake. There's no coffee here in Nilbog. It's the devil's drink. Coffee? That's the devil's drink. Um, no, this is, so I wanted to mention um, there is in the beginner box adventure. I, I think of it as probably the perfect intro to D&D that you can just purchase because it starts off with a little railroad that's like you travel down this road and you get to this town and you solve a little mystery and then it opens up and you can go to like any of these what four or five places in any order you want yeah and um, hopefully that would scratch the itch unfortunately the beginner box has been uh, played on adventure zone to a very funny uh degree so if you listen to adventure zone you probably can't play in uh, oh it's spoiled it over well yeah but they obviously every D game is gonna be a little different and theirs is really funny hmm. interesting okay um i asked how do you account for like a big open world where players can do anything and you your answer was because you've run it so many times you know everywhere they would go and everything they could do yeah i know the logic of a pretty much anywhere in my world unless they like try to go to different planes of existence like I am pretty set in my D&D world, which feels great because I can just go in, you know, with, with encounters planned. But if they don't experience those encounters, like, so be it. They can they can go. Until your players put a portable hole in the bag of holding yeah. and get sucked into the astral plane. <laughs> no, like, so. it, yeah, if they go to, like, the plane of fire, it's going to be like, okay, I'm going to have trouble. <laughs> <laughs> making encounters here <laughs> everything is hot here <laughs> well so my advice for new players who are probably less familiar with their world is um if you to simulate openness you really don't need to sit down and write out like here's my entire map here's like 120 square miles here's every cave nook and cranny that they can interact with like really all you need is 
uh, a couple of random tables, which we're going to get to <laughs> later in the show. Um, and, but I would say like a wanted poster, like a list of side quests, like D6, D12, whatever. Um, I would have a list of NPC names because you're always going to need NPC names. And then, um, oh, I had a third one. All right, maybe that's it. Like, ultimately, that's that's what you need to have adventures. So, okay, this is my, yeah, this is the thing. I think for a campaign, like the three things you need, it might be more than three, but the main thing you need, like kind of a main quest line or like what's the point of like maybe a world ending scenario or maybe just a big bad or some sort of thing. And, and there doesn't need to be a timer on it, but a timer may help. It's kind of a main quest line. Then there needs to be a side quest that's kind of like a main, maybe more localized quest, like a wanted poster or there's this mm-hmm. lich or there's a, you know, a, a bunch of hobgoblins up in the hills, whatever. And then the third thing needs to be each character needs to have their own personal quest line or personal arc. Um, and other than that, I think you're good. Like as long as those bases are covered, like each player has kind of some semblance of an arc. You have a, you know, basic main quest line. And then, like, a side localized quest. Um, that tends to do the trick most of the time for, like, starting DMs. I agree. Like, that sounds really good. Um, there's a list of, um, I forget what, uh, it's, it's called starting questions that you should really ask yourself when starting a new campaign. And so, um, in the world building episode, I talked about things that don't seem like bad habits because they're very fun, but they, they're not very useful in the game. Like the, the complete cosmolo- cosmological history of your universe um, is inaccessible to your players. So this list has things like, where do you buy your weapons? Who is the most famous fighter in the land? Oh, like who's so the most famous good. wizard? And, and it's like 20 questions that you just don't think about for your world building. And it's, and it's all of that to say, if you can answer these 20 questions, then that's all you need to start D&D. Oh, do you have a I link think, to that? So I think that getting back to the point of like, what do you do when the players just go north? I think for me, the, the number one thing that I try to do is ask more questions of myself as I'm GMing. So what would be in the number one question that I, I ask in that situation, if I have nothing to come up with, is what would be something interesting for there to be in the north? Like, What's the most interesting thing I can think of off the top of my head? House Stark? How stark? Uh, it could be. It could be. It could be a desert. It could be. You know, some sort of uh, lost city. It could be. You know, whatever. It could be, like floating mountains. Like there's there's a lot of things you can just come up with anything interesting off the top of your head, and you can be like, what would be interesting and appropriate for this kind of situation, mm-hmm. and that will, and then just go from there and just roll with it. So yeah. if if generally I have an idea of what I want to do or how I want to lead the players to interesting things in my world already, but I I will still have like at least a list of ideas either written down or in my head of like interesting things that I can include into my game. It's important to note geographically that if your players, even if they're on horses uh, and they're most likely be on foot because players don't think about that kind of stuff. They're not going to be all of a sudden in Canada, right? Like, they're not finding the frozen wastes overnight. Like, there's a lot of distance between wherever you are and north. Um, so just be aware that, like, the stuff you're coming up with doesn't necessarily have to be completely different uh, than what you have presented geographically. I think we get me, Will, I think me and you gave David a lot of, a lot of crap for this when um, in our, I think, encounter building episode... David said, if I have a quest to give the players and I have this certain quest giver, but they ignore that quest giver or just like mm-hmm. forget about them, 
I will make that quest appear with whoever they talk about. Or whoever they talk to will give them that quest eventually. Right, it's the quantum ogre problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And so I think we're like, well, that's not realistic or that's not, um, you know. But I think that that is a good point. Like if, if you um, if you build a bunch of encounters um, for this specific town and the players just go, yeah, we want to just ride through the town, forget about it. And we just want to keep going north or keep going east or whatever. They just pass it. They're just like, let's let's keep going in a random direction. Eventually, they will hit a town, and that town uh, can have very similar encounters to what you built, right? Like, you can plug in what you prepared to wherever they go. And oftentimes, this can't work if they go to, like, vastly different environments um, or, like, vastly different places or, like, just diving into a dungeon. But a lot of stuff that you prepared for that maybe they ignored, you can recycle, and be prepared yeah. to recycle encounters, recycle villains, recycle um, stuff that they just haven't interacted with. Because it may feel cheap to you because you're like, this guy is actually from Moonbrook, but he should – but, you know, they've avoided Moonbrook. It's like they don't know. They never talked to him in Moonbrook. So put him wherever they're going. Um and so you can recycle a lot of stuff. Like you don't have to, if they say I head north, you don't have to crumple up all of your work and throw it in the trash. Like there's still a lot to be pulled from that. Like you did the work, you did the preparation, save it. And it might not come up this session, but it could come up in a later session. Yeah. And that was, that was basically the point I was making in that episode. And I still stand by it today where <laughs> if I'm going to put in the work to prepare something and they ignore it, I'm going to bring it up later or I'm going to riff off it later and have something, a similar plot. And if they never interact with a plot hook or like if they never like talk to the bartender at the bar and they don't get that plot hook from him and they never hear about it, as far as I'm concerned, I can introduce it at any other point in the story because yeah. it's still a new idea that they haven't interacted with. And I'm not just going to throw it away. That's a waste of my resources and my time preparing mm-hmm. as a GM when I can just easily introduce it at the next town bar when they actually talk to the bartender. Mm-hmm. I would I would take a different approach because, um, I mean, like, I, I guess I agree where if they're not seeing the content, then it was never used, so just you can reuse it. But what I would do is if the players are just blowing past the town where I've prepped everything for that week... Um, I would just say, hey, guys, look, I haven't um, written anything for this area up here. Um, just stay here for this adventure. And then next week, what? Um, tell me where you want to go, and I'll design that. I could never do that. Isn't that taking away more of their agency than anything else I'm doing of, of you know, crit failures and, and like... I don't think so. Like, be an adult and communicate, right? Like, because otherwise you put yourself in situations where you're having to kind of, like deceive or manipulate a situation and that can lead to you either being frustrated as a gm or you frustrating the players especially if heaven forbid they find out that they live in this quantum universe where they never really had a decision to do anything huh but i mean that's looking at it from a, a, a fairness perspective in terms of like this is a game and not this is a story and it's dynamic and it is malleable and fluid and not like a hundred percent like solid and written yeah, I I think that communication has to take place before. Because for me, like when I was first DMing, yeah, like they're not going to be like we head north and, you know, just F up everything. Um, but like nowadays, I think I, I've made this clear to my players and, you know, they listen to this podcast. But I, they can go anywhere in my world because I am prepared because I've had years and years and years 
for this this world to be solidified. Um, yeah, I don't know, but making that communication instead of like outside the game or outside the campaign and plugging it into the session, be like, guys, stop. I can't do this. I don't know. It just feels... Well, I, I ran a game early in my career, um, and there was a player who just thrived on going the opposite of wherever <gasps> Dave Venture was going. Like, he, he was just a troll. Like, and, and I'm yeah. not talking about David. Like, this is a guy I'm not even friends with anymore. <laughs> um, like, if I said go left or right, he would dig a hole, like, every time. Oh my and so gosh. for a situation like that, like, you have to communicate. For my yeah. my Tomb of Annihilation group, I told them, like, okay, well, you can either continue exploring Omu or do the Thane of the Night Serpent dungeon. And they're like, we'll do the dungeon. I'm like, great. So now I'll just focus on that. And they know that if they go out, there's going to be what David calls loading screens, where now I have to, like, either pause oh, the game for 15 yeah. minutes. Interesting. Or, or I could just, you know, have a much smoother experience. Um, and then I do have a point about the Quantum Quest, um, because... I've realized that I don't really need that much detail for plot points. So um, what I would do is I would just build a table of like, here's six quests and they, they can happen anywhere. I've learned that random encounters are not some extra thing or they oh. don't have to be like an extra encounter. Like these are a series of planned encounters that can happen anywhere. And so then I put my design into that idea and I can design like six full encounters with terrain and, and enemies and bosses and treasure. And it whatever. limits the loading screens. It really does, because now yeah. like I know what can happen, and it can happen anywhere. And so that <sighs> yeah. that fixes um, the problem, and it fixes my philosophical objection to the quantum ogre. Interesting. Well, I think that so in terms of using random tables directly, I I love random tables because they are inspirational. They're they're not they're not rules. They're guidelines, and it's and it it, it helps. They help guide my imagination as a gm to be what are what are some interesting encounters that i can have and i just roll up a bunch of random encounters and i'm like oh this one seems interesting let's mm -hmm. let's throw this basilisk in here and see what the players do <laughs> let's spice it up and it and it and it helps you know guide my imagination in terms of telling a story that i'm passionate about and i'm interested in and making the world seem more lively in a way that i i can be intrigued in and i don't think that i think people can misuse random tables and they'll be like, Hey, I'm going to roll up a random encounter now. And then they roll up and it's like, well, now you're fighting 12 monkeys with four arms. This is what I rolled. <laughs> Shouldn't it I be want to see fun? that random table that you're rolling. Should it be 13 monkeys? Oh, no, it's 12 monkeys. Oh, no, like if, you know, like if a purple worm shows up, you know, when you're in some dungeon or a snow mountain, it's like, okay, that, well, that that tells me that the random tables were poorly designed and not thought about beforehand. Environmental, yeah. Yeah, because if you look at uh, in the back of Tomb of Annihilation, they have really great random tables for the jungle and for Omu, I believe, and then yes. one more place. And they are sensible. Like You won't get um, something that doesn't belong off that table. Yeah. Um, I think random tables are amazing. Um, maybe not because, you know, I, I talked about how randomness can oftentimes derail a story um and my games are more story-based more narrative um there's there's several arcs involved and so because of that i'll often look at just random tables for inspiration for just dm fuel um yeah. where i can just like suck in like oh my gosh these are some possible magic items i'll pick the best one and reward that to the players or you know here's the best kind of monsters for this environment i'll pick the one that works, you know, best. And so, yeah, they, you don't have to just roll um, on these random tables. Just, I think, 
I think they are underutilized um, because you can find stuff where you're like, wait, a unicorn could show up here? Oh, that would change everything, right? And there's some things you weren't even thinking about that you read through the random tables and you're like, oh, this could change everything in the best way. That's one of my favorite things about random tables is surprise as a GM. Yes, um, yes. Because so often, like, you have to know every aspect of everything that's happening. But then uh, the players get to experience this d- sense of discovery and um, exploration, and the GM doesn't necessarily get to. But the random tables give you that opportunity, um, oh, which is why I love true. rolling on the, them so much. Back to the DM. That's awesome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for me, like, you know, coming from my improv background, a lot of the stuff is, like, audience suggestions or stuff. And this is kind of like that. It's, like, um, something you weren't prepared for. Um, but as soon as it happens, there's kind of this click. Um, you know, I'm thinking of whose lines it anyway when when Drew Carey yes. is asking for what's an occupation from a hat, and then you know, yeah, someone yells, you know, stripper, and and like his eyes light up because he's like, I wasn't even thinking about that, but that could work hilariously for this game. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I love, I love that about it too, where it's like the randomness and stuff you see in the tables. You're like, oh, what, what? Oh, that could be great. Yeah, um, that's why I like them. I've also mentioned about, um, like if you're running a city adventure or really any adventure, just having the right tables in front of you to roll on can equip you for anything the players are going to try. It, the problem is organizing them into one place because if you're having to flip open books, you're not really going to remember where they are necessarily or even what you need. Um, so creating a good DM screen is crucial. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that... Um is not talked about much is combining stuff on random tables because um, you can get really wild encounters um, if you roll twice on the table and take like okay what if you're fighting a you know a hydra and an illithid you know so you have a mind flayer riding a hydra like it's like whoa like that encounter suddenly is insane um, and this can get a little wild and out of hand, but r- combining some stuff, you know, maybe you have a lich with um, six mind control giants, you know, like, like you can really get some cool stuff that, that really alters encounters um, by combining some of the elements on random tables you find. Yeah, true. Never thought of that. As we mentioned with rolling your stats for a character, rolling dice on random tables will narrow your choices. And so... Um, even though you're free to pick anything you want, so often you really just need one idea to, to one seed to build your plans on. And um, narrowing it down like that is really helpful, certainly for me and certainly for improv. Uh, like Jake said about Drew Carey, you hear like 10 suggestions from the audience and um, you know when you hear the right one. Yes, you do. Yeah, you can't really describe it. Yeah, there's it always the one and, it's, and, you, and you hear it and you know. And like you everyone know. cracks up a little bit. You're like, oh, but that'd be crazy. And it's like, that's the one. <laughs> That's definitely what we're going with. That's about all I have for randomness. Do you guys want to move into the question vault? Wow, that was so random, guys. (laughs) So random, XD. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the question vault. Each week we answer one of your questions. You can submit your questions to voxercanapodcast at gmail.com. This week's question is from Kennedy. He says, good morning, guys. I was listening to your Barbarian episode again He's listened to it more than once. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to your barbarian episode again and started thinking about where that stereotype of a big, dumb barbarian comes from. 
Then I started thinking more about where other class stereotypes come from as well, and I think one plausible explanation is the stat blocks themselves. In official D&D games, you have to use either standard array or point play, which results in 1 to 2 negative stats. Even rolling can leave you with a horrible minus 3 or minus 2 if you roll bad enough. Since the Barbarian really needs Strength, Con, and Dex to be effective, they have to put their highest values there. And since Intelligence checks rarely come up, that ends up being a lot of players' dump stat. True. And that goes for yeah. any character that's fairly martial in nature, Barbarian especially. So having that low to negative score means that some players will really over-exaggerate them, and that can lead into the Barbarian that charges into battle without a second thought. Just something I thought about. Would love to hear your all's thought on it. Best, Kennedy. Oh, that is a good question. Um, mm. So he's saying that uh, people have made like role-playing conclusions just based on your statistical array. Yep, I think that's so true. It makes sense. It's yeah, definitely. Because I, I don't know. I think about any character who I've seen played that has a negative intelligence modifier is always played to be somewhat more dumb than you know the average <laughs> character. <laughs> yeah, and we. It, on average, it, like his logic, it makes sense, and I think we might yeah. have talked about it before. But I, yeah, the, the logic checks out. So I think, um, I think one of my players in my games, uh, <laughs> we have uh, that Warforged I was talking about, who's like solid in stats. Um, someone made like a weird metaphor, um, and he was just like, "I do not understand what you are trying to say." Um, and like, he's like, you know, like implying like, okay, this Warforged robot can't understand metaphors. Um, but then one of my players is like, dude, your intelligence and your wisdom are both plus two. You should understand that. Right. And so it's like, huh, it is really Mm. interesting Mm. because I think a dynamic character almost requires a few stats being kind of bad, right? Like it's hard to have a really Mm -hmm. interesting character without one zero or a negative one yeah and i think we talked about that a little earlier yeah we, I, yeah i think we did so, so how does that extreme go into the the kind of um cliche of each class being you know they have to do the logical best thing like david you would know the munchkin min maxing and so that leaves a bunch of characters with i think generally low intelligence right because intelligence or is, low strength yeah or low, low strength, strength for or casters yeah and so i don't think we see the uh cliche of wizards who are like struggling to carry their backpack that, as much. i though. think we should but i agree i don't think if someone it's much easier to i think that this is the grog problem <laughs> i would say with barbarians from critical role season one is that a barbarian has low strength low uh intelligence like i just want to kill all sorts of things and it's like oh that's fun and silly um but when you're a wizard and you have negative three strength you're not like Mm. "Ah, ah, okay i got it Ah," and you know you're you're not struggling to walk and you pick up the single flask (laughs) right like you're not leaning into that um so wouldn't would you guys agree with this statement low social stats implying intelligence wisdom and charisma charisma are role played i mean obviously harder than like having a low strength dex or con because it's yeah, easier to role play well, a social yeah. stat bad like it, imagine if somebody had a low dexterity and you they always describe themselves as fumbling with any like minor <laughs> dexterous task like you just don't see that i've never seen that yeah i, I want to see that more i want to see someone fumbling with things because they have a low dex or struggling to lift things because they have a low strength or even if they have a low con, like they get drunk easier. 
or like mm-hmm. stuff like that, like little improv things mm-hmm. um, that are more physical improv, like physical comedy almost. Um, yeah. It injected because it's very easy to play a low charisma character <laughs> or especially well, a low intelligence character. So I wonder if this is just um, – I don't want to say it's bad role-playing, but I feel like in 5e – because I don't think it's bad role-playing. I think in 5e, they're trying to get people to pay more attention to their, their traits, bonds, flaws, and um, yes. ideals. And I like that. And that, that really should tell you more about your character than just some random stat that you interpret to mean a certain thing. Because I think that um, somewhere in the book it tells you that the an average human has, like, what, a 10 and everything? So, like, an average human. Um and your minimum stat in 5e is 12. So even like the dumbest barbarian uh, is probably smarter than the average farmer or peasant. So, yeah. that uh, Yeah. So, but it's just, it's easy because you're looking at these numbers all the time. I know I am like on that character sheet. And so you're just thinking, well, like I'm a minus two. Um, but really all that means is that if I'm trying to like solve a riddle, I'm less likely to do it. Or if I'm trying to like persuade this guy, I'm less likely to do it. It doesn't mean that I'm uh, an incapable mm-hmm. um well, I was gonna say barbarian in the Roman sense of the word, like just a, a fool, buffoon, a buffoon. <laughs> yeah, I um, I think one of the things me and my my players at my table were talking about is um, um, we talked about stats um for the attributes and like if you could add one, what would it be? Or if you had to take one away, what would it be? Um, we had an interesting conversation about wisdom, which I think mm. should be labeled as willpower instead. Um, because it's very interesting to be like, how do you role play someone that has a plus five intelligence and a plus five charisma, but a minus two wisdom? How do you role play that character? So they're incredibly smart, incredibly charismatic, but they're unwise. Like, what does that look like? I think that they have low social intelligence, but they have the charisma, but that they have, they have plus five charisma. Maybe it's just that they've never really experienced anything. So they're just like but naive. Is it naivety? Yeah. I, I Maybe. But you see, like, so I, I think um, Dungeon Crawl Classics did a really cool thing where they rolled um, your wisdom and charisma together into what they call personality. And they have a sixth new stat huh. that is luck, um, which is oh. actually really usable. Yeah, really that's cool really in interesting. Yeah. I, I, I because, like that. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I mean, you'd have to like rewrite five E to get yeah. that. Yeah, well, because I think the Star Wars system did the same thing. They didn't have. Um, I think they had willpower for kind of force stuff, and then they had presence for charisma, which was yes. it was more leadership based. Um, mm-hmm. and it was more like you know this person walks into the room, and commands respect, not like charlatan, deceptive, trickster, sort of thing. Um, and I really like that flavor too social you know like presence being a stat Mm -hmm. um so yeah there's yeah this is an interesting conversation about like how people kind of lean into negative stats um and there's there is kind of a natural way to play but i'm just such a huge fan of like having like a half orc wizard where it's like okay this person may not be like they they're smart and people may think oh what a dumb brute but this guy's like a, a smart wizard um, right, he's got his masters in uh, liberal arts. <laughs> yeah, I like leaning into um, kind of anti cliches, like kind of weird, um, specific, maybe n- not the best min maxed um, to allow for role play of a different type. Like maybe a, imagine a wizard that gets mad, um, like a, like mm. 
I don't know, like kind of a, a wizard with anger problems who's in half work. Like that'd be Would incredible. he live in a dungeon? Would he be a mad mage? Oh, we call him uh, Alistair Black uh, Cloak. It's coming out tomorrow. <laughs> live under a mountain. <laughs> live under mountain. <laughs> All right. Well, that is uh, our answer for Kennedy. Thanks for your email. Um, I love questions that get us talking. So yeah, that was a good uh, question. If, if you have a question you'd like to submit to us, once again, that is Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana, episode 33. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter memes and deep thoughts can be found at Vox Arcana Pod. Facebook has all sorts of interesting articles and gaming news at Vox Arcana Podcast. And our Instagram has amazing fantasy art and some behind-the-scenes material of us as we roleplay in Dungeons & Dragons. And that is at Vox Arcana Podcast. You can also email us questions and feedback to voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. Voxobots, roll on out.